Thank you everybody for joining us. I'm Father Chris Alar here at the National Shrine of the Divine Mercy. It's awesome to have you with us. And today, as you saw on your screen, we're gonna be talking about Eucharistic miracles. So today is not going to be a day of deep theology. We're gonna take a break from our seminary classes and we're gonna have some fun in seeing how the Lord just blesses us and gives us so many graces that when our faith gets a little weak, bam, he does something like a Eucharistic miracle. So let us begin with a prayer in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, we ask that you send the Holy Spirit down upon us to open our hearts and minds to receive the grace you wish to bestow. And in this, let us have any unbelief to turn to belief to see the real presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the gift of the Eucharist. And we ask this, Mother Mary, through your intercession and through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, thank you again, everybody. It, this is, uh, to me, one of the, the fun talks because it's about stories. We're going to be talking about different stories, but I will get into some scientific evidence, which isn't deep theology, but it's very interesting scientific evidence of what we find in these Eucharistic miracles. All right. Now, the doctrine of transubstantiation, which I talked about last week, a change of substance. The bread and the wine actually become the body and blood of Christ. Now the substance changes, so it now is fully the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus, but the accidents remain. What does that mean? That means it still looks like bread, tastes like bread, has the molecules of bread, but its substance is Christ. And so this is difficult that even many disciples rejected it. Now, if you wanna to go to my last week's talk, Finding the Eucharist in Holy Scripture, I talk about all this, what the Eucharist is, why we believe what we do, where it is in scripture, I talked about it. But today, we're gonna to tell more stories and show some pictures of these miracles. All right, now, when the people, the disciples didn't get this, eat your body, seriously? Eat, drink your blood, really? Jesus didn't correct them when they said, I can't do that. He didn't say, well, you're not really doing that stay with me. No, he didn't correct them. He basically is saying, this is true. You really are eating my body and blood. And last week I explained that the verb used is actually to chew. You're actually chewing on it. And so this is important. So Jesus didn't correct them or say that it was only symbolic. After John 6, which is the bread of life discourse, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you have no life in you. After last week, we explained that, and we explained what that means. Now, what does our Lord do? He then takes what he said in John 6 about him being the living bread, and he makes it happen at the Last Supper. And he commanded his disciples to do the same. Do this in memory of me. Now, let's get into the miracles. The church has recognized hundreds or over a hundred miracles, Eucharistic miracles. 
and determined that many of them were given to aid people in their lack of faith, even priests. Now, many are recent. Now, everybody thinks these miracles happened back in the Middle Ages or the early centuries. No, actually, many are recent. And the reason may be because we have some doubting Thomas in us. You know, the Lord, what did Thomas, what did the Lord do with Thomas when Thomas doubted? He says, until I see the wounds and place my hand in his side, I won't believe. And we see that today with a lot of people. I don't believe. That's just a symbol. I don't believe that's really Christ's body and blood. Well, he's showing us, just like he showed Thomas, this is real. All right. One of the earliest Eucharistic miracles was recorded by the desert fathers in Egypt back in the sixth century. All right. They were the first monks. All right. One of these monks, no, I'm sorry. It was even before that. My apologies. One of these monks had doubts about the real presence of Jesus in the consecrated host. Now, two of his fellow monks prayed for him that he would have a stronger faith and they attended mass. Now, what's interesting is when the bread was placed on the altar, all three of these monks, they were priests, saw a small child there, just like Faustina always talked about seeing the child Jesus on the altar. And we'll talk more about that. When the priest put out his hand to break the bread, an angel descended from heaven with a sword. So picture this. you got an altar. You've got three monks, priests. You have this child on the altar that they all saw, and this angel comes in with a sword. When the priest broke the bread into small pieces, the angel cut the child into pieces. Saw Faustina saw this too, but we're talking about something way before St. Faustina. The angel cut up the child, then poured the child's blood into a chalice. This is documented. When they all received the skeptical priest, one of the three, was the only one to receive a morsel of bloody flesh. And this is documented. And he cried out, Lord, I believe that this bread is your flesh and this chalice is your blood. He screamed it. And immediately the flesh became bread. And he took it, giving thanks to God. Now those monks wrote in their documentation of this that God knows human nature and that man cannot eat raw flesh. And that is why God, Jesus, has changed his body into bread and his blood into wine for these who receive it in faith. So it went from this bloody morsel, which really was Jesus, back into the accidents of bread and wine. Well, wait a minute, Father, you said it doesn't become bread and wine. It, the bread and wine become the body and blood of Christ. Now you're telling me the body and blood of Christ becomes bread and wine. No, we're talking about the accidents the substance, what was handed to that priest was a bloody morsel of flesh. And Jesus turned it 
into bread and wine. Now that bread and wine still has the substance of the blood and the flesh, but the accidents so that we can eat it, so that we are able to eat it, are bread and wine. But the substance is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. So the real presence association of the Holy See is currently translating reports of over 120 Vatican-approved miracles. We hope to get more of these. I am so fascinated by this topic, I'll be doing more work on this, maybe even writing about it more. Now, faith, obviously, should not be based on miracles alone. This is not good. But they can strengthen our faith. Now, I'm going to show you a video. It's the only video today. It's about three and a half minutes, so it's a little longer. But we'll talk about these stories you're going to hear in this video. And, because this video doesn't show this, but what I'm also going to talk about is the scientific studies showing that these are miracles. Let's watch this quick video. Not only flesh and blood. Eucharistic miracles happen in different ways. Hosts suspended in air or saved from fire. And natural disasters avoided by exposing the Blessed Sacrament. One of the most famous Eucharistic miracles happened in Assisi, Italy. In 1240, St. Clair sent invaders to flight after they invaded the convent by showing them the Blessed Sacrament. Processions with the Blessed Sacrament have stopped overflowing rivers, saving entire villages. Even more surprising is the Eucharistic miracle of Chamaco, Colombia. On January 31, 1906, a tidal wave threatening to wipe out the coastal city suddenly stopped when the priest raised the Blessed Sacrament. In 1433, the city of Avignon, France, was flooded by the Rhone. In the chapel of the Great Penitents where the Blessed Sacrament was exposed, the waters parted, leaving the altar and monstrance totally dry. No playing with fire. In Prasac, France, on Holy Thursday, 1643, a fire broke out in a church. A chalice that held the Eucharist melted completely but the Eucharist remained intact. In Dronera, Italy, in 1631, a vast fire was only extinguished in the face of the Eucharistic procession. In 1902, in Martinique, Mount Pelet erupted suddenly. Villagers of Mont Rouge on the volcano's slopes were spared. That day, the Sacred Heart of Jesus appeared in the host during Eucharistic adoration. Since 1656, the Italian city of Cava de Tirene has celebrated its liberation from a plague after the city was blessed with the Blessed Sacrament. In 1461, in La Rochelle, France, a mute, paralyzed young boy was instantly healed after receiving communion during Easter Mass. There are countless instances of stolen, consecrated hosts being recovered perfectly intact. Often, their rediscovery was accompanied with shining phenomena. In 1345, a pyx with consecrated hosts was thrown into a marsh near Krakow, Poland. An intense light burst through the mud until the hosts were recovered intact. 
animals have even been the protagonists of lost hosts being found and adored. One famous story recounts, a starving mule knelt before a consecrated host presented by St. Anthony of Padua. Some miracles involve consecrated hosts floating in air. Others include apparitions of Jesus on the host. In Puerto Eten, in Peru, in 1649, the child Jesus and three white hearts, symbolic of the Trinity, appeared for 15 minutes on a host exposed for adoration. In 1392, in Moncada, Spain, the baby Jesus appeared on a consecrated host to dispel a priest's doubts about the validity of his ordination. There are many Eucharistic miracles that we don't know about, and they continue to happen all with just one goal, to confirm our faith in the real presence of the body and blood of the Lord in the Eucharist. Okay, so those are some of the things we're going to talk about today. Not all of them, but we're going to give some of the main stories that we want to tell you about what God has done through these Eucharistic miracles. Now, one of the ways that theologians talk about these miracles is in the type of Eucharistic miracle. We always hear, well, it's a Eucharist and Eucharistic miracle, but there's different types. Some where the image appears, others where the host bleeds, others where the host miraculously is transported somewhere. Let's start by ones that emit bright light. That is a famous uh, example of a Eucharistic miracle. All right. With some of the Eucharistic miracles, as I just said, you'll see from the host, either with people there or not, a great light coming from the Eucharist. In 1247, this was in Santarum, Portugal, there was a woman who was concerned about her husband not being faithful. So she went to a sorceress, a witch, don't do that, all right, and said to her the problem. Now this witch said, I can help you but I need you to bring me a consecrated host from a Catholic church. We'll talk more about Satanists and witches and, and consecrated hosts in a minute. The woman put it in her kerchief there and the cloth, when she started to take it home, became bloodstained. It began to bleed. Now this frightened her. So what she did is she hid it this cloth in the host inside the cloth, she hid it in a drawer in her bedroom, <laughs> okay? And that night, she's in the room with her husband, and the drawer started glowing. This, You know, like if you put a big bright light inside a drawer, you know how it, it just emanates out. And so anyway, when her husband saw it, she confessed. So she broke down, she confessed what was going on. So anyway, this bright light became so bright that people around the area saw it coming out of the bedroom windows. And so this bright light drew many people. And so these townspeople came to the house attracted by this light. Now the priest took the host, so the priest was even notified, and he came there and he took the host back to the church and put it in a wax container. Now, it bled for three days in this wax container. Now, they left that host, remained in this wax container for four years. 
They had a little different way of treating hosts back then. So one day after four years, the priests opened the tabernacle door. This is where they kept it. And he saw that the wax had been shattered and broken into numerous pieces. So what happened was in its place was a crystal container in the middle of the tabernacle and the blood had all been collected inside that crystal container. Now that blood and this whole miracle, let's look at our slide, can be viewed. This is the Santerum Portugal miracle of 1247. Now this host is still viewable in this reliquary at the church. I was there. I got to go up, you actually go behind, you walk up a set of stairs, you go behind it, and you can see this reliquary, a very powerful reliquary, or excuse me, a miracle. And so I was actually there to see it. This is a great story of an example of the bright light. This is very well documented. Now, a similar type story took place in the 1300s, not long after this miracle, in the Polish village of Wawel near Krakow, Poland. Now we Marians, St. Faustina, are tied to Poland. So this is why I wanted to talk about this one. It's amazing what happened. Thieves, they broke into a church and stole a monstrance containing consecrated hosts. They didn't care about the hosts. They thought the monstrance was made of gold. So once they determined the monstrance was not made of gold, they threw the whole thing into a marsh with the consecrated hosts. Now, that night, a super bright light emanated again, shot out of the marsh and from the exact spot where the consecrated hosts were. Now, the light was visible, get this, for several miles. That's kind of like the baby Jesus, right? Where the star brought the the uh, wise men or the shepherds, I mean. So anyway, this light was visible for several, from several miles away and it frightened the villagers. So of course they went to the bishop. Back in those days, people went to the church when they were troubled. Now, the bishop called for three days of fasting and prayer. Then on the third day, sound familiar, he led a procession to where the source of that light was coming. So after three days, they showed up at the light and there they found the monstrance and all the consecrated hosts. Here's a picture of it. This is just a drawing, but let's look at our next slide. This is from the miracle of Wawel in near Krakow, Poland in the 1300s. But the consecrated hosts had been submerged for three days and didn't soak up. I mean, how do you put bread in water for three days and have it completely untouched. This again is all documented. What I'm giving you are all approved. These are not just people making up a story. These have been church investigated, church approved. So you know these stories are not just somebody saying these things happened. These were all investigated and approved by the church. Now, here's another type of miracle. The face of Christ on the host. Now, I have not given this talk publicly. I gave this talk just last week privately to the Holy Face Ministry in Buffalo, New York, and they actually have witnessed Christ's face appearing on a host uh, in multiple occasions. And so I wanted to talk about this one when I, when I gave this talk to them a couple weeks ago, a private talk, because this is one that really, I think, 
starts to get us into the realm of wow. What happened? All right, in some Eucharistic miracles, as I said, the actual face or the image of Christ appears right on the host. And you know what? I could give you many examples of old ones. I'm going to jump right into recent, 21st century. In on October, excuse me, April 28th, 2001, in Trivandrum, India. So we're talking just 20 years ago. A father, Johnson Karor, was saying mass when he saw three dots appear on the consecrated host, taking it to mean the Trinity. Now he asked the faithful to remain in prayer, and he placed this Holy Eucharist in the tabernacle. Now, a week later, on May 5th, this same priest put that host out for adoration. When they did, here's what they noticed. Let's show our next slide. That's the actual picture of the host. Wow. This time it actually had a human face. And so during adoration, this image became clearer and clearer. And again, this is one fully approved by the church. Not made up by people with drawings. They've analyzed the host. They've analyzed the image. It's not a drawing. It's a miracle. And so these are the reasons God gives us to strengthen our faith. Now, another way he gives us is through water. Have you ever heard of a Eucharistic miracle involving water? I'm going to give you two great ones. All right. A different type of Eucharistic miracle was recorded. Now, this is the one in the 6th century that I was talking earlier about. The other one was actually before that. That was the first one I, uh, the miracle I opened up with about the Desert Fathers was even earlier. Now we're talking 6th century in the Holy Land, around Palestine. There was a saint called Saint Zosimus. Z-O-S-I-M-U-S. Saint Zosimus of Palestine. Now, the miracle, however, involves Saint Mary of Egypt, who left her parents. Now, if you are struggling with sexual uh, temptations or promiscuity or infidelity, she's the saint to turn to. Saint Mary of Egypt. You know why? At 12 years old, she became a prostitute. Now, that means there's hope for all of us, right? So she became a prostitute. 17 years later, somehow, she ended up in Palestine near the Holy Land. And it was on the feast of the exaltation of the cross when she went to church looking, believe it or not, for customers. Now, man has been broken for all, for all uh, history. So when this young woman goes looking for prostitute customers at the church, wow, you know we're broken. So anyway, she went there, goes to this church looking for customers as a prostitute, and she saw an image of Mary. And the reports are that that image became alive. You ever look at an image and you almost swear you saw the eyes move? Yeah. So anyway, she saw this image of Mary and was overcome with remorse so much that she begged forgiveness on the spot. And she asked for Mary's help. So she's asking God for forgiveness, Mary for help, and a voice came clear to her, if you cross the Jordan River, because she was near there, you will find peace. Now this is why, because 
the biblical of the, the, the Jews crossing the Jordan River, get to the promised land. All right, so she did this. She went and took up a life, crossed the Jordan and began the life of a hermit. And she lived alone in the desert for 47 years. Again, this is St. Mary of Egypt. Now, for 47 years. Now, one day she saw a monk. This is back to St. Zosimus. So St. Zosimus shows up there in the desert where she was. He had come there for Lent. This is why we go to the desert. Why do you go to the desert? That's where you battle Satan. Why? Satan's afraid of water. Evil doesn't like to cross water. The evil spirits want the desert. So the, the church fathers used to go into the desert to confront the devil. That's why Jesus went into the desert for 40 days. It was to confront the evil. So the tradition has always been that's where the evil spirits really thrive. Now, what happened was they saw each other and they spoke for a while. And at the end of the conversation, St. Mary of Egypt asked Zazimus to come back the following year to, to bring her Holy Communion this time. She had been without Holy Communion. She was alone. She's also an inspiration if you're not able to receive the Eucharist today because your church is closed or um, something like, um, you know, you're, you're quarantined and you can't receive. Pray to St. Mary of Egypt. Now, Zosimus did as he, she requested, but Mary, when he came back, was on the other side of the Jordan River. Now, there was no boat this time for him to cross. The first time he had a boat. Now there was no boat. And he thought, there's no boat anywhere. How am I going to get across the Jordan River? I can't do this. It will be impossible. Well, let's look at our next slide. <laughs> this is a drawing of St. Mary of Egypt from the 6th century. What she did is she made a sign of the cross and walked across the river. She walked literally on the water, again, documented by St. Zosimus. And he gave her Holy Communion. Now she asked him again to come back the next year. But when he did, he found this time she was dead. So now what happened? Well, next to her corpse was a note left for him. And it said, please bury my remains. Well, what was fascinating is this is the desert. He didn't have any tools or whatever. And all of a sudden, a lion, these, I would imagine an Asiatic lion, these are the desert lions. And a lion shows up and actually dug her grave. You know, it has always been told by the saints how God communicates with animals. You saw that video I just showed. There's a little section in there that talks about how God communicates with animals. That donkey actually genuflected before the Eucharist, even though it was starving. Now, let's keep on this theme of water. And I'm going to tell you about my favorite Eucharistic miracle of them all. This one is my favorite. I'm a water guy. I used to love boating. I love fishing. And this is another water miracle, but it happened in France. Now, this is my favorite. <clears throat> it took place in Avignon, France, in November of 1433. What happened was there was a small church run by the Franciscans that had adoration, but some great rains came, torrential rains, and flooded the whole area. And the whole area was water was above what people could <clears throat> protect their homes. Now, two friars came by boat. They rowed the boat 
certain that this little church was going to be destroyed. Now, when they got there, there was water four feet deep all the way around the church, four feet high. But there was a pathway from the doorway to the altar that was perfectly dry and the sacred host was untouched. Now, what I'm about to show you is an actual drawing because this was in 1433. So we actually have the actual drawing from one of these monks. Here it is, the next slide. That's the actual drawing. Look at that. The water is four foot high on the sides. This is like the Red Sea. This is like the Lord parting the waters of the Red Sea to get them to the promised land, the Holy Eucharist, right? And so here's the drawing of the water four feet deep. The water had been held back, literally, as I said, the same way with Moses in the Red Sea. And this was verified. They actually verified it. The church approved it. Incredible. That's my favorite one. All right, so let's continue on some more. What about when the Eucharistic miracle helped actually give us a mass celebration? Yes, Corpus Christi. Like Corpus Christi, what does that mean? The body of Christ. Now, let's talk about this. It was 16, excuse me, 1263. And a German priest, Peter of Prague, stooped down to his humanity level and be, or should say, elevated up his human, uh, humanity level and said, I don't believe in the Eucharist. And so he began to have doubts using this human reason that this is all fairy tale. So anyway, he went to a town of Bolsena, Italy, and he was troubled overall by many things. The apathy of the faithful, clerical immorality and laxity, lack of reverence at the mass, but most of all, what troubled him was his doubt about the Eucharist. So yes, he had this doubt, but God was active. Now listen, if you have doubts, it's not necessarily a bad thing. The doubt that you have, you have to give it to God. The doubt means God wants you to think about it. It doesn't mean you're a lost soul. It means you want to you wanna take it to God. You want to think about it. Do I doubt this? Do I doubt that? I'm not sure this. Take it to God and give it to him. Now, this is what the priest did. He doubted, but he still was holding on to like, Lord, just show me. And here's what happened. So the next day, he arrived there and celebrated Mass at the tomb of St. Christina. She is the early, uh, early martyr. And as soon as he said the words of consecration... Holding up the host, it began to bleed. Now the blood fell onto his hands and onto the corporal, you know, the white square cloth the priest places on the altar, and he began to cry. Again, this is all documented. Now he asked it to be taken to see Pope Urban IV, and he said, please, I'm going to take this to Urban IV, who was residing actually in the neighboring town. Now, Father Peter placed the host in the corporal and then wrapped both of them together in another linen. Let's take a look at this. Our next slide. This is Bolsena, Italy. And I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. But there you see the cloth and the spot of the host. All right, so this Father Peter placed the host in the corporal and then wrapped it around in another linen. Now, 
Pope Urban IV collected all the facts and ascertained this is the Holy Father, that it was a miracle. And they went through all, they saw it, they viewed it, they did what they could do for testing at the time. Now, one year later, in 1264, this same Pope, Pope Urban IV, instituted the Feast of Corpus Christi. Now, this is fascinating. Y'all hear of Thomas Aquinas, one of the greatest saints ever? He was living during this time. And Thomas Aquinas wrote a lot about the Eucharist. So Pope Urban IV, because of this miracle, he commissioned St. Thomas Aquinas, listen to this, to compose a mass and an office for the Liturgy of the Hours honoring the Holy Eucharist. You all go to Eucharistic adoration? You ever sing O Salutaris when they expose the host? O Salutaris? Or how about at the end when they repose and they sing Tantum Ergo? Tantum Ergo. That was written by Thomas Aquinas because of this miracle. That is amazing. Every time we go to benediction, last night, if you watched us, today at three o'clock, we're going to be doing a first Saturday devotion here at the shrine. You will be able to join us in benediction. When we expose the host, we will sing, O salutaris, O hostia. Then when we're done for the adoration, we will repose and we go, tantum ergo, O sacramentum. Then we are honoring the Eucharist in the way Thomas Aquinas did. That's why he wrote those hymns was for this miracle. So think about that every time you're at benediction. Those, those hymns came from the Eucharistic, documented Eucharistic miracle. All right. You know, it's funny because Corpus Christi is important. It's a story that I wanted to tell you regarding Corpus Christi that happened to me personally. Um, when I was ordained a priest back seven years ago, almost seven years ago, um, usually when our priests are ordained, they're given the opportunity to go home. You know, they had to finish final exams. They had to go through the stress of uh, coordinating an ordination, visitors, guests, family. And so uh, our community usually gives the guys a chance to go home right after that. And I was going to do that, but I felt compelled. The very first thing I wanted to do after ordination, <clears throat> I have a love for the Native American uh, culture and the people. And um, I heard about from a former seminarian or a fellow seminarian of a place up in northern Canada that where he was from. And, and this place was so far up, but they were living basically on, an, on a reservation of Indians with no, really no law, no order, and certainly no sacraments. Um, if there was crimes committed, it would take days, if not weeks, for the Royal Canadian Mounted Police to even come there. They had no police, really. But anyway, worse of all, they had no mass. It had been years since they had celebrated a mass because there was no priests. In fact, in this whole region of Canada, there is nine priests to cover an area bigger than the state of California. Can you even imagine? So I'm like, I want to help. So the day after my ordination, I got on a plane and flew to Saskatchewan. I was there at the airport, got on a bus, rode a bus eight hours north till the road ran out. Then I was picked up by a missionary couple and driven on an, a logging road for another 200 kilometers to get to this place. So finally, I'm there 
and there was a smaller village, and then there was this bigger reservation. And they asked me to say Mass, and it happened to be Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. So I say the Mass, and the tradition at the end of Corpus Christi is to have a procession, a Eucharistic procession. So I am prepared, I'm in my cope, and most of the people who were there were Indian women and children. Few men that were older, very few young male Indian men. As I'm processing through the neighborhood, and there's about 1,200 people who live on this reservation, I was planning on going through and blessing all of the areas. I couldn't do every house, but at least the main roads. And I had about 100 Indian women and children behind me. And as we processed up one of the roads, there was a probably late 20s, early 30s, Native American or First Nations people, they call them, on the porch with another man. And they started screaming from the porch. And I noticed it was interesting. They weren't screaming at me. They're screaming at the Eucharist. Screaming, get that blank, blank thing out of here. Desecrating it verbally. Um, blaspheming. Well, I held on to the monstrance. I still had the monstrance and I have these people behind me. And they started screaming again. Get out of here. Get that thing out of here. Get that blank, blank thing out of here. Well, we could only go forward. So I just held the Eucharist tight in the monstrance and prayed for God's grace and protection. And I noticed the third time they screamed, now they're getting angry. The first guy jumped off the porch, came down. I noticed he had a big buck knife on his side and he put his hand on it. And I'm thinking, gee, Lord, I've been a priest for one day and I'm going to be a martyr. And so I prayed for protection and this guy comes down. Now the other Indian uh, First Nations man followed him and they both stood in front of me and blocked me. And I've got this people behind me and I held the Eucharist up and they're screaming again, not at me. It was weird. They were screaming at the Eucharist. Now, at that moment, somehow in my heart, I knew that they were going to desecrate this Eucharist, or at least attempt to. So I'm praying, and this Indian reaches up to literally grab the shaft of the monstrance, which I'm holding on to, to grab the shaft of the monstrance. And I knew he was going to throw it down, smash it, desecrate it. So I'm holding on as tight as I could, because I was not going to give it up. I was going to go down with it, just thinking, okay holding on, and all of a sudden he reaches up to grab it, and as he's reaching up, he said, I told you, get in the look of just um, demonic, because, you know, they hadn't had the Eucharist for years. Many of them were involved in that shaman type of pagan rituals, and he reaches up to grab the shaft of the monstrous to throw it down, and he grabs it, and his hand was thrown off, and his hand throws off and he falls to his knees and he's holding his hand screaming. And later the ladies told me, the Cree Indians, these were Cree Indians, that he was screaming, my hand, my hand. It had burned his hand. So when he grabbed the Eucharist or the shaft of the monstrous to desecrate it, his hand couldn't stay on it and it threw his hand off and there was a burn mark across his hand. And I remember all the people, I kind of looked back they all fell to their knees. Why do you think God allows a Eucharistic miracle like that? Because if those people had any doubt, because there was a lot of doubt in that Indian village, that this isn't real, they were returning to their pagan ways, God just reinforced it. 
amazing. And so to me, this is an example of a powerful story that God gives us in the Eucharist. To me, it was a, a, a powerful witness to the people, not powerful witness to me. I, I believe in the, well, I mean, it was, but it was a powerful witness for those who didn't believe. And that's why God allows them sometimes. All right, let's keep going. All right, now, sometimes there's a miracle of preservation where the hosts don't decay. Now, this happened on Easter 1331 in Blanot, France. Here, a woman received Holy Communion, and the priest didn't notice that when he gave it to her, the host fell from her mouth and landed in a cloth that was covering her hands. So she's praying. She's got this cloth over her hands. He gives her the Eucharist, turns away, didn't realize it fell onto that cloth. Now, when he was told about it, he went back to the woman who was still kneeling at the railing in prayer. But instead of finding the host on the cloth, what he found was a spot of blood. Now the host was nowhere to be found, but in its spot was the blood. Now when mass was over, this priest took the cloth into the sacristy and placed it into water, again to dissolve, see what would happen. He washed the spot, but it didn't come out. It got darker and larger, reaching the size of a host. Now he cut that host out, or excuse me, the mark out, and put it in the tabernacle along with other consecrated hosts that were never distributed. Now what's interesting is those hosts got left in that tabernacle. Something happened. I don't know if the church closed temporarily and then reopened or what it was, but the hosts ended up getting left and they never decayed. What is interesting is they still left it in there after they saw this and it ended up being hundreds of years Hundreds. Bread decays. If it was only bread, it would have decayed. The bloodstained cloth was preserved perfectly, and so were the hosts. Now let's look at our next slide, because our slide shows this. This is Blanot, France from 1331. This is still seen at St. Martin's Church every year on the Feast of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ. Powerful. All right, now, Let's tell some more interesting story here. The saints knew, uh, oh, excuse me, do you ever hear the story about Satanists, supposedly before they become high wizards, actually are tested? This is crazy. What they do, and I was told this by Zachary King, who spoke here at our shrine, who actually was a high wizard in some satanic cult. And he said, actually, they will place a hundred hosts in front of you and 99 are unconsecrated, and one is a stolen, consecrated host. So they'll place them all on a table before, and this wizard is supposedly to invoke power, and he is able to point out the consecrated host that shows that he has these powers. Now, if that doesn't tell you who the real church is and the realness of the Eucharist, because the, the devil knows God exists, and so these wizards of his are actually knowing their power comes from Satan, but he knows the Eucharist. Now on the flip side, let's not despair because the saints have the same power. Do you know what one saint? We hear this about Satanists, right? But do you know that there was saints like this? And I'll tell you one that might surprise you. John Paul II had the ability to know when the Eucharist was consecrated, not in an evil way like the Satanists, in the good way. Now. Let's look at the next slide. 
John Paul II declared the year of the Eucharist, saying, stay with us, Lord. Here's, I want to tell you a story about John Paul II that was amazing. His absolute outpouring love for Christ in the Eucharist, they said, actually became a problem for his team when he would travel. Listen to this. In fact, the prefect of the papal household often warned the organizers of papal events to make sure not to allow John Paul to pass within view of a place where the Eucharist was. Because then, otherwise, he would enter the chapel for long periods of time and the entire schedule would be thrown off. Like if they had the schedule down to the minute and then he spends 30 minutes in adoration, it would throw the whole schedule off. So these organizers would try to avoid this. It's kind of a bittersweet situation, right? All right, now, in 1995, Father Michael White in Baltimore was invited to organize the Pope's visit. John Paul II was coming to Baltimore. Now, one of the organizers told this Father White, quote, listen, in the, in, the, in the place where he's staying, keep the hallway door closed when he comes through your building because he doesn't know that there's a chapel and in there the Eucharist. If he finds out, he'll spend a lot of time in prayer. They weren't criticizing him. They were just saying, we got a tight schedule here and we know our beloved Holy Father. He's going to end up stopping. So sure enough, they come through the building when it was time to leave, John Paul walked through that hallway door and they're like, uh-oh. Now down this corridor, there were tons of doors lined up in the hallway. And John Paul starts walking down the hallway. They said, Father, Holy Father, we'll go out the backside. So he's just simply walking down the, the, uh, the hallway. Dozens of doors on both sides. All of a sudden, and they led to rooms and bathrooms and they were all closed. So you didn't know what was behind them, if it was a bedroom or a bathroom. Now, when he passed by a certain door, he stopped. This is John Paul. And he stopped at this door, and it was the door to the chapel. And in the chapel was the consecrated blessed sacrament. They say the story was he looked at the door, not even, even opened it yet. And it was the door to the chapel where the Eucharist was. And he looked at Father Tucci. And he shook his finger at him. And without saying a word, he shook his finger and nodded his head like this. Like, don't you do that to me. You, you purposely did this to me. <laughs> so he knew what they were doing. They didn't allow him to know that the Blessed Sacrament was there, but he knew it. Isn't that incredible? That's a saint. And so he shook his finger in his head. And Father White recalled, he said, there was no way he could have known the Eucharist was in there, but he did. There were dozens and dozens of doors, but he knew exactly where it was. And then the Holy Father did this also when he then ended his visit in Baltimore at St. Mary's Seminary in Roland Park. Father White again was astonished that the Pope, who had never been in that building, instinctively walked right in and turned right to the chapel. He knew exactly where to go. Amazing. Now, in line with this John Paul, guess what else saint had this ability? You guessed it. Our beloved, next slide, Saint Faustina. Now, I'm going to tell you something that you may not be aware of in the diary that I think is incredible. Now, Saint Faustina would see the child Jesus 
when the priest would consecrate the host at mass. Now, she also lived with the Blessed Sacrament. Listen to this. This is awesome. This is diary number 44 that you don't hear a lot about, and I don't know why. This is amazing. She said, one day Jesus said to me, you want to talk about a Eucharistic miracle? Here's a Eucharistic miracle. Picture St. Faustina here. One day Jesus said to me, now she's in her convent, she's in her little chapel within the house where the sisters lived. Jesus said to me, I am going to leave this house. She's in the chapel and Jesus is talking to her because there are things here which displease me. And the host came out of the tabernacle and came to rest in my hands and I with joy placed it back in the tabernacle. So here Jesus says, I'm leaving. The host comes out, puts in her hand, and she turns around and puts it back in. This was repeated a second time, she said. And I did the same thing. Despite this, it happened a third time. So could you picture St. Faustina? Jesus keeps coming out of the tabernacle. I'm leaving. She puts him right back in. He comes out of the tabernacle. I'm leaving. She puts him right back in. And she said, despite this, it happened a third time, but the host was transformed into the living Lord Jesus. And he said to me, I will stay here no longer with an exclamation point. Jesus did not speak much to St. Faustina with an exclamation point. This was one of them. And Jesus said, I will stay here no longer with an exclamation point. So here's Faustina, and she says, At this, a powerful love for Jesus rose up in my soul. And I answered, You gotta love St. Faustina. And I, Jesus, will not let you leave this house. <laughs> and she put him back in the tabernacle. Can you imagine St. Faustina standing up to Jesus like this? But it was out of love. She wasn't being disobedient. She's like, Lord, you can't leave this house. She says, and I, I will not let you leave this house, Jesus. And she put an exclamation point. <laughs> Can you picture this going on? And again, this is her words now. And again, Jesus disappeared while the host remained in my hands. And once again, I put it back in the chalice and closed it up in the tabernacle. And listen to this. And Jesus, after that, stayed with us. That's the power of what we can do if we can be like St. Faustina. And she said, however, though, I undertook three days of adoration by way of reparation to make up for what was displeasing to our Lord. So she just didn't put him back in and leave. She made three days of reparation. That's what we are doing today at three o'clock. Join us as we do a time of reparation to the Immaculate Heart of Mary on our first Saturday devotion. Every first Saturday, join us for that. Now, St. Faustina goes on in Diary 312. She says this. Remember I told, her that, I told you that she sees the child Jesus? At Mass, I saw the child Jesus on the altar, joyfully and playfully holding out his hands to the priest. Now remember, who brings us the Eucharist? The priest. Well, Father, he's broken. He's sinful. It, yes, God will deal with that. The priest, however, 
brings us the Eucharist. He's in persona Christi at the altar. Whether or not he's good man or a bad man, he is at that moment Jesus Christ. Not before, not after, during that moment. St. Faustina said, but a moment later, the priest took the beautiful child Jesus into his hands, broke him up, and ate him alive. <laughs> At first, I felt a dislike for the priest for having done this to Jesus, but I was immediately enlightened by Jesus and understood that this priest was very pleasing to God. So she literally saw the priest eat Jesus. This is truly Jesus. She saw him eat the child Jesus. Incredible. Now, what about diary 442? Listen to this. This goes back to the priest being in the place of Christ in persona Christi. Once when I saw my confessor, blessed Michael Sapochko, saying mass, I saw as usual the child Jesus on the altar. From the time of the offertory, However, a moment before the elevation, what's the elevation? What I call the high priest or high point of the mass, Father Mike Gately says the same thing, the concluding doxology where it's God offering God to God. Why, is we, why do we go to mass? Because the mass is the perfect form of prayer, unlike our private prayer, which is imperfect. When you come to mass, you are at the perfect form of prayer. Why? Because the mass is God offering God to God. God the Son offering himself to God the Father through the power of God the Holy Spirit. So God the Holy Spirit is offering God the Son to God the Father for our sins and the sins of the whole world. At that moment, this is what's happening when the priest elevates in the concluding doxology and he says, through him and with him and in him, that's the Trinity. O God, almighty Father, we're returning it back to the Father. All glory and honor is yours forever and ever. So here's what St. Faustina says. At the moment before the elevation, the priest vanished from my sight, and Jesus alone remained. As the elevation approached, it was Jesus who took the host and the chalice in his little hands and raised them together, looking up to heaven. This is incredible. St. Faustina saw that this is what our faith teaches. It was actually Jesus lifting that sacrifice of himself. Remember, Christ is both the victim, the one offering, and the one being offered. Jesus is the one offering. His little hands held the bread or the, 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 the host and the, and the precious blood and the body and held it up. But he's also the one being offered. He's on that patent, body, blood, soul, and divinity. That's why Hebrews says, the book of Hebrews that he's one offering and the one being offered. This happens at the mass. So at the mass is, 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 is being elevated. It is the priest. The priest is elevating and the people are just looking around, smacking their gum. Well, he's just a sinful priest. It's Jesus who overtakes that priest. That priest becomes in persona Christi. He becomes Christ. That's the reason the priest is a man. It's nothing to do with sexism. In fact, the calling to a vocation of a cloistered nun is a higher calling than a diocesan priest in a way of life, but not in the fact that the priest can confect the Eucharist. So 
St. Faustina sees this priest elevating the host, the chalice of the precious blood and the body of Christ, and he disappeared. The priest disappeared. Faustina's watching this. And in his place was Jesus himself. This is what our faith teaches, and this is what Faustina saw. Incredible. And St. Faustina says, this, I saw Jesus. And she says, Jesus took the host and the chalice in his little hands and raised them together, looking up to heaven. And a moment later, I again saw my confessor. He had disappeared and he now reappeared. I asked the child Jesus where the priest had been during the time I had not seen him. And Jesus answered, in my heart. Wow. All right. Finishing up here. Now. One more, St. Faustina, Diary 677. During Mass, a moment before the elevation, God's presence pervaded my soul, which was drawn to the altar. Then I saw the mother of God, Mary, with the infant Jesus. The infant Jesus was holding on to the, onto the hand of Our Lady. Now this is going on on the altar. A moment later, the infant Jesus ran with joy to the center of the altar. So he held her hand, the little Jesus. Then he let go and he ran to the center of the altar. And Mary turned to Faustina and said, See with what assurance I entrust Jesus into the priest's hands. Whoa. That's what's happening at the Mass. So in the same way, she said, you are to entrust your soul. If she can entrust her son to the hands of the priest, so we too need to entrust ourselves into the hands of Mary, the hands of Jesus. And she said, be like a little child. That's how Jesus was on the altar. Amazing. All right, let's talk about this childlike innocence. Now, before I show you the next slide, I want to tell you the story. There was a, a lady in Italy, Bologna, Italy, named Amelda Lambertini. And she was this childlike innocence, like Faustina just described. She was born of a noble family there in Italy in 1322. She went to live with the Dominican nuns at a young age, and she begged them to receive the Eucharist. But she was denied because she was so young. Then, on the vigil of the Ascension, Amelda was in the chapel quietly praying, again, nodding aloud. She was too young to receive Holy Communion. But after Mass, one of the nuns heard a noise, and she looked up into the choir loft where she was, and she saw Amelda glowing and a light coming from her and shining above her head with the sacred host suspended in the light. Now the priest was contacted, the chaplain, and he came there to see it. And the chaplain said that Jesus himself was making it known that she should receive. Now, he said, let the little children come to me and do not stop them. Those are the words of Christ. So he gave her her first Holy Communion. Now, the nuns allowed her to remain in prayer. And a little bit later, um, they went out and then they came back and they sent for her to come have her breakfast. Amelda, at that time, after receiving Holy Communion, was still kneeling as they had left her, but she had this big smile on her face. Now they called to her, but she didn't answer. Her body was still, and then they realized she died. 
And the mother superior described it that she died of pure joy at 11 years old. Her thanksgiving had been completed and she had nothing left on earth to desire but Holy Communion, and she got it. Now, here's a picture of her. Let's show Imelda Lambertini from 1322. Look at that beautiful little girl. I tell you, I want to do a talk on the incorruptibles. Stay with us on these Saturday talks, because we're going to talk about how is it that a saint doesn't decay after 800 years, 700 years. This is amazing. In fact, almost exactly 700 years. Now, let's talk about triumphs with the Eucharist, like the Ark of the Covenant, uh, God's power. All right, let's talk about this. St. Clair. St. Clair, one of my favorite saints. All right, St. Clair had a story that was also well documented. Back in 1234, there was a situation where some barbarians that were under the army of Frederick II were preparing to come and assault the town of Assisi. And they had came to where Claire was. She was the assistant of St. Francis of Assisi, right? She was his right-hand man, uh, woman. So these barbarians had begun to scale the walls of San Damiano, where she was. And they were spreading terror, pillaging and raping. And here they were coming. They didn't care that these were nuns or not. And all of a sudden, Claire, who was sick, she took the ciborium from the little chapel that was next to her cell, and she came out to the window. And she took that window. Here were the invaders coming up. They had actually placed a ladder outside her window, and they were coming up the ladder. So can you imagine how afraid St. Clair was? So she was there in the, in the, in the convent. These barbarians were going to come in. They were going to kill them. And St. Clair grabs the Blessed Sacrament from the monster, or from the uh, ciborium in the next chapel, and she holds up the Blessed Sacrament. So she goes there, and she holds it up in the face of these invaders in this open window. And as she raised the Blessed Sacrament, let's look at our next slide. As she raised the Blessed Sacrament, look at this. The soldiers who were about to enter the convent fell backwards. It was described as if they were dazed and the others who were ready to follow them up turn around and ran away. Here are these thugs, these barbarians, these guys who don't believe in anything and they were scared to death. Isn't that awesome? This is why St. Clair is a lot of times represented in art holding a ciborium. This is awesome. This is a great story. Now, let's get into the science and really what I think you all are looking for in these Eucharistic miracles. What is the story of the science now? What about when it physically turns the body and blood? This is the most common, let's finish with the most common type of Eucharistic miracle. Not just a light or, or preservation, but now we're talking actual body and blood, flesh and blood appear. Now, and I know I'm mispronouncing this, Lanciano is one of the first approved miracles, Eucharistic miracles, back in the 700s. Now, I want to tell you about this story because it involves the monks of St. Basil. Now, during a mass, again, guess what? A doubting monk saw that the host had changed into flesh and the wine had changed into blood. Again, the opposite of what we would think. We think of 
not seeing it. But we know that the accidents stay of bread and wine, but we don't see the actual bloody and blooded is there in substance, but we don't see it. Now this doubting monk saw it. So what happened was the blood coagulated into five globules. I think I'm mispronouncing that, but containers, I guess. But the flesh remained the same. Here's what happened. The flesh and the blood appeared to be human flesh and blood. So they took and put it, these, this blood into these globules, and each individual one was weighed, and it weighed the exact same as the other ones, even though they were all different sizes. Now, that's scientifically impossible. Now, although the ones were different sizes, they all weighed the same. Now, since this first basic investigation of this miracle in the 700s, the church has permitted many studies on this. They still have the blood, right? Now, the church permitted the studies on these relics, the, both the blood and the flesh. Now, 800 years later, in 1574, these five containers of blood were weighed again, and again it got the same results. They were the same, even though the amount of blood was totally different. So eight centuries had passed, and there had been no deterioration in this flesh and blood. Now, what happened? All right, now let's bring science in. Now we're talking 1,200 years later. In 1970, 71, Pope Paul VI decided to let a study, scientific study, now, here's what they found. The flesh, which was yellowish brown in color, had the structure of the myocardium. This is the heart wall. And the endocardium, the membrane of fibrosis elastic or fibrous elastic tissue lining the cardiac cavities. This is inside the respiratory or the um, heart of a, of a human. <clears throat> Now, <clears throat> these have the same appearance as in the human heart. Let's look at our next slide. If Brother Mark can pull up our next slide. Look at the picture there. And this is from the 8th century, the 700s, in Lanciano. A priest in Lanciano has doubts about the real presence. However, when he consecrates the host, it transforms into flesh and blood this miracle has undergone extensive scientific examination and can only be explained as a miracle. The flesh is actually cardiac tissue which contains arteoles, veins, and nerve fibers. The blood type, as in all other <clears throat> approved Eucharistic miracles, is type AB, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. Now, this is where it gets interesting. Now, the blood, okay, was determined to be of human origin of AB, and I think it's AB positive. Now, people always say that's the universal donor. Christ gave his blood. That would make sense. But AB positive is actually the universal receiver. So Jesus is receiving all humanity, all of us, into him if we come. 
And so this is the universal receiver. Now, the proteins in the clotted blood had the same makeup of normal, fresh human blood. Notice I said fresh. This is 1,200 years old. Now, this professor named Professor Linoli asserted that the blood, if it was taken from a dead person, a cadaver, would have deteriorated rapidly. So given that these samples were centuries old, had no preservative, and were never hermetically sealed, meaning airtight, in any kind of container, they should have deteriorated. But they had properties of fresh human blood. The doctors concluded that only the skill of a trained pathologist could have even got such a sample the way it was meticulously cut. So now, last page here. Now, in recent times, we see this example as well. There is one Eucharistic miracle from Buenos Aires in 1996 that I want to tell you about. And we're going to get more into the science here. This one is fascinating. A true Eucharistic miracle obviously cover, occurs at every Mass. We just can't see it, but it happens. A true miracle at every mass. When the priest utters the words of consecration, true miracle. Sometimes God makes it visible though. And that's what happened in Buenos Aires in 1996 when Archbishop Jorge Bergoglio, AKA Pope Francis, was in August 18th of 1996 in Argentina. Now the priest, at a local parish, here's the story, was told that a consecrated host had been desecrated and was left on a candle holder in the back of the church. Now he couldn't consume it. So this Father Pezet put it into a glass of water, like remember we told you is the proper way to do it so it can dissolve, then you pour it into the ground. It's dissolved because remember, once the particles don't remain, our Lord is no longer present. That's why it's okay to dissolve it and then pour it out because once the particles dissolve, our Lord is not present, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the same way. So he poured it out. I'm sorry, he poured it a glass of water, put it into the glass and put it in the tabernacle so that it would dissolve, as I said. When he opened the tabernacle eight days later, he saw that the host had been transformed. It was now a piece of bloody tissue, much larger than the original host. Now he informed Archbishop Bergoglio, AKA Pope Francis, who asked him to have it photographed. So they did, and it was decided that they were gonna keep the host in the tabernacle without publicizing it or saying anything. Now for three years, this remained in there, but after three years, the bloody tissue had not decomposed which is extraordinary and basically impossible to explain. Any bloody tissue will decompose in a short period of time. Now it's been three years and there was no special attempt made to preserve it. There was no preservatives put in there or anything. So guess what? A good friend of our Marian community, the Marians are always linked somehow to this kind of stuff. Dr. Ricardo Castignon Gomez, 
who did our retreat from us for us a couple years ago, took a sample of the bloody fragment and he sent it to New York City. Now, here's where it gets good. Dr. Gomez, or Castignon, as we call him, didn't want the scientific community to be prejudiced. So he did not tell them where it came from. These are the ones who would be examining it. So he did not reveal the source. Now, a team of five scientists were assembled, including the famous cardiologist and forensic pathologist, Dr. Frederick Zugaby. He's the author of many books on um, forensic pathology. And here's what he said. Not knowing where the host came from. This material is a fragment of human heart muscle found in the wall of the left ventricle. This muscle is responsible for the contraction of the heart. It pumps the heart, the sacred heart. The left cardiac ventricle pumps blood to all parts of the body. Does it make any, any, is it any surprise that this is the part of the human body that Christ would show in the Eucharistic miracle? The part that pumps the heart, pumps the blood to the rest of the body of Christ? The heart muscle is an inflammatory, is in an inflammatory condition and contains many white blood cells. What's, what's important about that? Well, listen. This indicates that the heart was alive at the time the sample was taken. This world-famous doctor said, quote, it's my contention that the heart was alive because white blood cells die outside a living organism within minutes. The white blood cells had penetrated the tissue, which indicates that the heart had been under severe stress as if the owner had been beaten severely about the chest and this guy had no clue where this source came from. This is incredible. Now, let's look. Here's Dr., or excuse me, here is our next slide. This is a picture of the Buenos Aires miracle. Look at that host, the body and the blood. This is a host consecrated. Look at it. If we have any doubts about this is truly the body, blood of Christ, look at that. This statement by Dr. Zugaby eliminates the possibility of fraud that a critic would say, a critic could come up and say, well, it cannot be, you know, what you say it is. Okay, let's look at this. This doctor says that this is what it is. And, and a critic might come and say, no. Now, let's look at this for a moment. Are you really going to think that the officials of the church had authorized the torture and death of a male 
with AB positive blood, the same blood on the Shroud of Turin and the face cloth of Oviedo, and opened his chest while he was still alive after torturing him and removing the tissue from his beating heart? I don't think so. So then, how did this specific piece of tissue make its way into the tabernacle, into the mass? Miracle. A miracle. There's no other way. Solid medical evaluation shows that the sample had not decomposed and could not have been obtained from a deceased subject like a cadaver. It came from a living person. Who would have known that? Certainly not the common people. So this is Dr. Castignon. Let's look at our next slide. Here he is. Take a look at that. Guess where he's speaking from? Here where I'm standing right in front of you. Um, right here to my right-hand shoulder, Brother Mark and show, that is where I am. This is Dr. Castignon. Now, he is here at our shrine, and he gave a talk called A Matter of Faith, A Matter of Fact. So here he was at our shrine, and he gave a talk here about this event. Now, this is amazing because what really surprised our brothers in his talk was this. He told the story about how he tested this. And he said he went through before a group of doctors and scientists, and he was giving a talk. And these doctors and scientists didn't really know what was going on. And he said that he put up a picture of a piece of bread, a priest, and a prayer. And he said, you give me this piece of bread, this priest, and this prayer, and I will give you human heart tissue. They started laughing at him. One of the doctors, he said, was like, who is this guy? Get this guy out of here. He said, hold on. He said, I told you, you give me a priest, a priest of bread, and this prayer, and I'll give you human heart tissue. They're like, what are you talking about? He says, well, and I'm changing the names. I don't know the names. But three of the doctors who owned labs and ran labs that he sent his sample to were in the audience. And he said, and you know how I know this is true? Dr. Jacobs, your lab. Dr. Hendricks, your lab. And Dr. Mueller, your lab. All confirmed it. Because what I sent your lab was a piece of bread that was prayed over by a priest with this prayer. And I sent you that piece. And every one of your labs came back and said it was human heart tissue. He said you could have heard a pin drop. That is incredible. That is a Eucharistic miracle. All right. So the common scientific findings in all Eucharistic miracles, I got to go through these. I'm running out of time. The blood has hemoglobin and the DNA of human origin. Studies conducted by forensic evidence have shown that the substance originates from the interior of the person, excluding the idea that someone could have placed blood onto the host. Okay. You know what happens to blood when it hits the air? Okay, the blood that hits the air, if they would have taken blood from the exterior, it would have different properties. Instead, the properties of the blood on the host are not from the exterior. So nobody came and rubbed blood on the host. The blood on the host is from the interior. 
It is almost like you took blood from the interior of a human person and somehow got it onto the host. There's no way to do it without exposing it to the air. This is incredible. So it's, it, 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 it excludes the hypothesis that someone could have placed it from the exterior. Now, the blood type is AB, similar to that found in Lanciano, on the Holy Shroud, and other places. Studies reveal that the tissue found corresponds to the muscle of the heart, myocardium. And the fact that the outer part of the blood has coagulated for years, while the inner part of the blood is fresh, indicates that the tissue continues to ooze fresh blood. If it wasn't oozing fresh blood, it would coagulate and it would be, it would be um, 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 not fresh. The outer part it had coagulated and is not fresh, but the inner part begins to effuse fresh blood. This is inexplainable, unexplainable. Furthermore, the blood contains, in all Eucharistic miracles, proteins indicating elevated metabolism in the person from which the tissue came, like that found during trauma. The blood also contains white blood cells, as I said before, suggesting that the tissue is still alive or was removed from the body of a living person. White blood cells die within minutes. If I was to rub my blood on a host, the white blood cells would be gone in 10, 15, 20 minutes. They're still there. This blood also only has the X chromosome. Remember, a child, when it's born, has an X, and then the father gives it a Y, or if it's a, uh, uh, I'm sorry, the, the father gives the other chromosome. If it's an X, it's two Xs, that's a female. If it's a, the father gives a Y, it's an X and a Y, and it's a boy. Remember, only two genders. This chromosome, or this blood, only has the X chromosome. Jesus should have had an X and a Y if he was only human, meaning he's a male. But he has no Y chromosome. Shows that no father supplied it, which means he has no living father. All right, last half page. You're hanging in there with me. An example, last final example, happened in Sokolka, Poland, during a mass at St. Anthony's Church on October 12th of 2008, where a host was dropped. The pastor gave the host to religious sister, the sacristan, to place it again in a container of water so that it could be dissolved as we talked. But one week later, they opened the safe where it was placed and smelled the aroma of baking bread. Now, they noticed that in the middle of the host, there was a curved bright red stain. And this is what they found. Let's look at the next slide. We only got a couple left. All right. Eucharistic miracle in 2013. I'm sorry, this is an additional one. This is an additional one, but very similar in the same place of Poland. All right. Now, this one was verified by the Polish bishops and the Vatican. And this one says the final medical statement by the Department of Forensic Medicine found that, quote, in the histopathological image, the fragments of the host were found containing the fragmented parts of the cross steriated muscle. It is most similar to the heart muscle. Tests also determined the tissue to be of human origin and found that it had signs of distress. I'm sorry, that was an additional one. Let's go back to this one I was talking about from 2008. Now, here's what they found. 
from their study. Amazing. The stained part of the host was found to be a piece of cardiac tissue which was completely integrated into the bread part of the host. Now, wait a minute, Father. You said the bread disappears. No. You're still eating the accidents of bread. The substance is the body and blood of Christ. There's no more substance of bread. It looks like bread, tastes like bread, looks and tastes and feels like it, but it's not. It's the body of Christ. That's why it's bleeding and has human heart tissue. So the substance is the body and blood, but the accidents of bread and wine remain. Now, here's what they found. They found that the piece of the cardiac tissue was completely integrated into the bread. The, the completely seamless integration of the tissue, the human heart part, with the bread part is so refined that it appears that the tissue is growing out of the bread of the host. Indeed, the analysis showed that the integration of the two substances could not be produced by any known human technology. Now, according to do Dr. Sobi. Sobianic Lutskova, okay, this is what is said. After examining it, quote, even NASA scientists who have at their disposal the most modern technology would not be able to artificially recreate such a thing. Furthermore, the blood contains enzymes of a dying person. The studies prove that no foreign substance was added to the consecrated host, rather that part of the host took was taken in the form of human heart muscle of the pers a person near death. Wow. All right, so we're going to finish up here. You know, many photographs, let's take a look at our next photograph. This is one out of the Dominican Republic. I have a friend who visits the Dominican Republic and you know, and I have another friend that I give spiritual direction to that works um, as a teacher. And she said, and she's from the Dominican Republic, and she said there's a lot of witchcraft and a lot of voodoo, and God is doing things there to show. Now look at this. These are not approved. There's a lot of photographs of unapproved but amazing miracles. Look at this one in 2011. This can help the faith of unbelievers. But what I wanted to show you, the purpose of showing this, I'm not going to talk about unimproved. Everything I talked about today is approved. But there are other ones that God shows us and we see photos of, and it can help us with our faith. Now, where do I want to finish? In the truest form of miracle. Communion brought by a holy angel. Let's look at our next and last slide. Do you know that an angel appeared to the three children at Fatima in 1916 before Mary appeared in 1917? Yes, and he brought them Holy Communion and taught them a prayer similar to the Divine Mercy Chaplet that I offer you the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. All right, St. Faustina, do you know that a seraphim angel brought St. Faustina Holy Communion? Yeah, and here's the power of the priest. Here's what she said in the diary about it in 1677. Once, when a certain doubt rose within me shortly before Holy Communion. See, don't lose hope. Even St. Faustina had some doubt. When some doubt rose within me before Holy Communion, the seraphim angel with the Lord Jesus stood before me again. 
I asked the Lord Jesus, and not answering in, not receiving an answer, I said to the seraph angel, now, he also gave her Holy Communion later, but I wanted to quote this part about what happened before Holy Communion. She asked the seraphim angel, could you perhaps hear my confession? And this angel answered, this is the highest of the angels, the seraphim angel, no spirit in heaven has that power. Only the priest. Whoa. And at that moment, the sacred host rested on my lips. This is the power of the priest given by God to confect the Eucharist diary 1677. The power of the priest to confect the Eucharist no matter who he is, no matter what he's done. This is our gift. It is called the most blessed sacrament, the source and summit of our faith. If you don't see this stuff and say, whoa, God, you are giving us a gift of your <clears throat> actual body and blood, soul and divinity, then watch this video again, pass it on, send it to those who don't believe because God is actively working in the world through not just ancient miracles of the Middle Ages, but today. And so all of this is the gift of God's divine mercy. And this is where I wanted to finish. God's gift of mercy is incredible. The last slide is actually, I finally finished this book. Some of you have already gotten it. If you don't, I document all the power of the Eucharist. The meaning of the mass is in this book. If you would like to get it, please visit shopmercy.org or call 1-800-462-7426. We're having a new print run. Uh, if you, We've been stocked out, but we're having a new print run coming. Be all set. Place an order. Give it as a gift because in it, I talk about the beauty of the Eucharist. Whew. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, I'm Father Chris Aylar, and I'm excited to tell you about the completion of my newest project that's been a long time in the making. It's called Understanding Divine Mercy, my new book from Marian Press that finally in one place, I feel, gives you the, all the answers of everything you need to know about God's divine mercy. In fact, it answers what is divine mercy, who is St. Faustina, and what message did God give her for the world? How about the Feast of Divine Mercy, and what do you have to do to receive the graces that Jesus promises on this one day of the year? We talk about the meaning of the image, and how to pray the Novena, and how to understand the chaplet, and what to do in the hour of mercy, and much, much more. Answering questions like, why would a merciful God allow such suffering? So please, we hope that you'll pick up a copy of this book for you and your loved ones. Because if you get the understanding of what God's mercy is, you will understand why Jesus said it's mankind's last hope of salvation. So please visit us at shopmercy.org or give us a call at 800-462-7426. Thank you and may Almighty God bless you. Please follow or subscribe to this podcast to receive the latest episodes and updates. If you have been blessed by this podcast, I invite you to leave a review. Reviews greatly improve our podcast ranking and will help spread this podcast to other people throughout the world. Are you enjoying this podcast? 
I invite you to listen to more shows brought to you by the Marian Fathers of the Immaculate Conception. Join us daily for enriching spiritual content which will help you on your journey with Jesus Christ. Simply visit divinemercyplus.org for a complete list of our shows. That's divinemercyplus.org. Are you a Marian helper? Join our Spiritual Benefit Society and start sharing in the graces of all the daily masses, prayers, and good works of Marian priests and brothers all over the world. Sign up is free and easy. Simply visit micprayers.org. That's micprayers.org. Thank you, and God bless you.